welcome, I'm Vernon Mann. It's 1979. Return with me to Tehran, where, with the Shah of Iran now gone, the people await with excitement the arrival of the man they see as their saviour, Ayatollah Khomeini, architect of the revolution, from his exile in Paris. The Shah gone, the chant on the streets is Khomeini, Khomeini. Shops and cafes begin to open again after a general strike. People have smiles on their faces as they go about their business. There's new hope in their eyes after years of suppression and poverty. They wait with eager anticipation the return of Ayatollah Khomeini. Meanwhile, there's no real government. The Prime Minister, Shapur Bakhtiar, leaves the country in a hurry when the armed forces withdraw their support. He warns the people are swapping one dictator for another. A few years later, he and his secretary are stabbed to death by unknown assailants. Meanwhile, religious bigwigs form a welcome home Ayatollah Khomeini committee. And at the hotel, committee representatives invite us all to a meeting where we're to be told what will happen on the Ayatollah's return. In a rambling four-hour affair, mullahs explain their plans in heavily accented English. We struggle to stay awake. We're given official passes. No one without these will be given help on the big day, they say. We are allocated to a numbered bus, which will take us to the airport, where they say we will have a good position from which to view the Ayatollah's arrival. On the big day, their plans fall apart immediately, much as we'd expected. Such is the size of the crowd, the buses get stuck in the sea of humanity, surging towards the airport, and progress no further than a 100 yards from the Welcome Committee's headquarters. It's reckoned two to three million people or more are on the streets. We ditch the bus and, with Jamshi leading the way, try to carve a passage through the masses towards the airport. At one point, we come across a child, no more than five or six, screaming on the ground. Already bleeding, he'd have been trampled to death in moments. We haul him to his feet and pass him up to a lady on the roof of an old van. He isn't hers, but she holds him in her arms and dabs at his wounds with a rag. We battle on towards the airport. Jamshid uses his briefcase as a battering ram. We make the airport finally and clamber aboard a flatbed truck to get at least a slightly elevated camera position. Any official facilities like roped-off filming areas have been trampled by the crowd. The Ayatollah Khomeini Welcome Home Committee's plans had been polaxed by the people. What we witness can only be described as biblical a million, two million people, who knows, waiting for the cleric they hope will change their lives. Waiting patiently, quietly. A collective sigh of excitement, though, as an aircraft crosses overhead. A military plane, not the Ayatollahs. Then the sighs become roars as the Air France plane carrying the Ayatollah comes into view and slowly circles the airport a couple of times before landing out of sight behind the terminal building. The crowd is ecstatic, the atmosphere electric. We film the multitude, their exultation, their tears, their sheer joy as the Ayatollah steps on the aircraft and waves. A tiny figure in the distance. A massive moment for his followers. But we have to go. We have a crew and correspondent on the Ayatollah's plane. They'll get all the close-ups. We have to get back to town to bag a filming position where AK is due to make his first public appearance this evening. It takes us three hours to get back to the centre of Tehran and secure a balcony filming position above a street already jammed with fans, if that's the right word. 
Ayatollah Khomeini speaks from a balcony next to ours, to the sort of adulation the Beatles used to get. We have a prime position as he begins his speech. The people fall silent. Five minutes or so in, he turns and switches his gaze from the crowd to me, for no apparent reason. Maybe he was saying something uncomplimentary about the West. I don't know what he's saying. He's speaking Farsi. He looks me straight in the eye. I hold his gaze for just a couple of seconds, maybe only half a second. Piercing pale blue eyes, cold and unfriendly, a shiver down my spine. I can still see those eyes now. Easy to imagine the power he has over the people. In the following days, just about anyone involved with the Shah, from generals to even mildly pro-Western students, are rounded up and jailed. From the hotel, I hear shots in the night, and next morning, the now revolutionary Times of Tehran has pictures of generals who died before a firing squad on its front page, pictures taken just after they'd been executed. Not just generals, it's reckoned that several thousands were killed in the weeks after the revolution. A couple of days later, I managed to secure an interview with the new justice minister. I have to submit a list of questions in advance, something we rarely do in the UK. If you agree to an interview, you can't dictate the questions. You have to busk it. This, though, is different. If we say we want to ask about Sharia law, the executions, they probably tell us to sod off. So we devise a series of innocuous questions like, how do you see Iran develop now the revolution has been such a success? We're escorted into the Justice Ministry building by a pretty unfriendly bunch of revolutionary guards who make a big show of checking out the camera kit. The minister eventually arrives and we sit opposite each other in an ornate and cavernous entrance hall. We sit in silence as a sound recordist attaches a microphone to the Justice Minister's robe, an operation again observed closely by a suspicious guard. We don't exchange pleasantries. My first question is, Minister, can you assure the Western world that you will not be introducing Sharia law? The question is translated for the minister. He goes into a rage, gets to his feet shouting and angrily waving his arms, microphone snapping from his robe. The guards put their hands in front of the camera. They drag me roughly from my seat and hustle me and the crew to the exit, shouting loudly all the time. We're lucky to leave with all our gear intact, though the minister's mic is in need of some care and attention. Out on the street, we get into Hamid's yellow cab and speed off towards the hotel before the revolutionary guards get any other ideas. The cameraman has filmed the entire episode and it makes a good couple of minutes on the show that night. Not the revolution's finest PR coup, and somehow I don't think I'll be asked back any time soon. After that, the office loses interest fast, accountants on their backs. The Shah's gone, the Ayatollah's in charge, the budget's shot, game over. I want to buy one last carpet before I leave, so visit the showroom set up in the hotel to sell to the media. But the dealer isn't there. I pick out the one I want, a nice little kill him, and leave $500 with his assistant. He doesn't have a clue what anything is worth. I think 500 is fair. Three months later, back in the office in the midst of an inquiry into my Iran expenses claims, black market and all that, I get a call from the dealer. He's in London and wants another 500 for his carpet which looks very nice in my hallway, but it's not worth another 500. I tell him he can have it back, and we agree and exchange the next day. It's only a smallish carpet, so my wife wraps it up, and I leave it at reception early the next morning. I start at eight. 
Soon afterwards, I get a call from reception. Your carpet men are here, she says with a smile in her voice. I go downstairs to the reception area, and to my horror, they've unrolled it and are on their knees in their Iranian caracol hats, checking it for damage, in the middle of an expense inquiry, for God's sake. I pray no one comes in from the finance department. I'm back in Tehran again in 1980 when six armed men storm the Iranian embassy in Prince's Gate in London. They take 26 hostages, two journalists amongst them, including my opposite number at the BBC, who got more than he bargained for while trying for a visa. They kill one guy, throwing his body onto the street. On May the 5th, my birthday, the SAS pile in, abseiling from the roof, storming through the windows and killing five of the intruders. Back in Tehran, I'm celebrating my birthday in the hotel room, stupidly drinking moonshine vodka and coke, its providence assured as safe by Jamshid. We go to the British Embassy and film a small demonstration. No big deal. Next morning, a year older and obviously none the wiser, there's a story in the Tehran Times saying 32 villagers are blinded after drinking illegal homemade vodka. A few days later, I take an Air France flight at 2am and watch the new movie Grease, delighting in the music, fun and frolics after the depressive atmosphere in Iran. This is May 1980. I've not been back since. Six months later, Jamshid unexpectedly turns up in our London newsroom, a startling figure with his bushy beard and thigh-high leather boots. He's carrying a sack over his shoulder like Father Christmas. I shake his hand warmly, but worry he might let something drop about our expenses. My friends, he declares loudly, attracting the attention of the entire newsroom. I bring you presents, all very valuable things looted from the Tehran Museum. Well, at least he's not trying to sell drugs. He gives me what he says is an antique Roman glass horse. It's about a foot tall and quite exquisite, I think. A reporter gets a pair of antique ornate pistols. All worth very much money, says Jamshid. On my next day off, I take my Roman horse in a brown paper bag to Sotheby's for evaluation. In the queue is the reporter with his pistols, also in a brown paper bag. We sit with half a dozen others awaiting for evaluation of our treasures. The good news, says a valuer in brown suit and red waistcoat, is that the horse is definitely Roman glass. He pauses theatrically and my hopes rise. But it's made from bits and pieces of Roman glass, he says. All stuck together quite well, but worth absolutely nothing. Ah, well, I meet the reporter outside, looking equally glum. They said they hoped I hadn't spent more than a tenner on these pistols, he says sadly. So Jamshid has the last laugh. I wonder what he's doing now. As I write this in June 2021, the hardline head of Iran's judiciary, Abraham Raisi, has just been elected president. He has a record of grave human rights abuses, including involvement in the mass executions of political opponents just after the revolution. I recall hearing those shots during the night. I have just one bit of revolutionary memorabilia, a cheap watch with a black face inscribed Souvenir of the Islamic Revolution. The second hand has a splodge of red on its end, blood. Every 20 seconds, the face of Ayatollah Khomeini fades up just for a moment then fades to black again. Still working after all these years. That's the end of this episode and the end of my stories from Iran. I look forward to having your company next time in Norway as I take a big gamble while covering an oil rig disaster. This is Vernon Mann. Bye for now. Music